flying cargo to the moon. I'm Tanya Hall and joining me is Dr. Tim Crane, co-founder, vice president of R&D and chief technologist at Intuitive Machines. Welcome, Dr. Crane. Glad to be here, Tanya. So how did the company start and what does Intuitive Machines do? Well, like a lot of people, um, uh, my partners, uh, Steve Altimus and Cam Gaffarian and I, we're all drawn to the space program um, through different paths, but it was that desire to explore and create through engineering that brought us to NASA. And um, around 2012, I kind of began to feel that, that my time at NASA was, was not being productive, that we were in a little bit in a, a slow roll. We'd stopped flying the space shuttle. We hadn't started commercial crew yet. The moon was in the far distance. And so, um, I, I began to have wandering feet and, and had a feeling that the engineering practices we had developed for human spaceflight in particular, the way we um, simulated and, and modeled systems and did risk assessments and, and then did development of, of really engineering systems to solve some of the most intractable problems in the world in human spaceflight, those same skill sets could be applied commercially in other sectors as well. For example, simulation and modeling for an aerospace vehicle could be applied to simulation and modeling of an oil and gas drilling exploration problem, or simulation and modeling of a surgical procedure in the biomedical uh, regime. So being in Houston, where we have this convergence of aerospace, energy, and medicine all in one area, uh, Steve and Cam and I decided to set up Intuitive Machines originally as a think tank to take all the great engineering approaches and, and knowledge that we knew about from NASA and the aerospace community and look at how we might apply those across multiple sectors um, and really come up with some innovative solutions. And around that time, there was a, uh, a conference that was just starting in the Houston area called Pumps and Pipes. And the whole premise of that was a, a pump to a, a oil and gas person had some characteristics similar to say the heart. And so we originally began with, with that approach and, and uh, thought process of how do we go out and, and really apply this great engineering toolkit from aerospace and find innovation in that way by applying it differently in other sectors. So so let's transition from your founding to today. Tell us about NASA's Commercial Lunar Payload Services Program and how you're contributing to that effort. Well, so that is, is where the, uh, the tune changed in our company from being a think tank across multiple sectors to about three years ago, NASA's procurement model, which has been evolving quite a bit. We have commercial crew, we have commercial cargo already. They came out with the Commercial Lunar payload services contract. And we looked at that and thought, wow, that really would be right up our alley being innovative, commercially minded entrepreneurs with a NASA background. And the new model is there is a pool of um, vendors that have been accepted into the program. There's 14 companies in the CLIPS program. And then we compete on task orders that come out where basically NASA says, hey, we have a payload we would like to have delivered to the moon, or we would like to acquire this service in the vicinity of the moon. 
We then write a response to that and basically bid in this approved bidders pool to provide that service through really what's a private mission. It's not a NASA mission. It's uh, our spacecraft on our mission. And one of the things it does is provide a service for NASA. The fascinating thing about that is NASA's desire is to not be the primary customer. They really want us to grow a lunar economy so that they're tapping into um, basically a shipping and delivery service that provides cargo delivery for NASA, but also universities, um, other space uh, programs in other countries. And so we exist on this commercial level to transport goods to the moon and return the data from the moon, independent of a particular NASA mission. Tim, you've been quoted as saying, you can't go to the moon on a fixed price for under a hundred million in 30 months, doing it the way anybody else did. How did everybody else do it? And what innovations have you brought forward to, to break that rule? Well, one thing is, is, is I think it was Gershwin when he was talking about putting on a Broadway show. He said, what you need is good talent and not quite enough time. And, and that's kind of the same, same thing we have is there's a constraint, which is you can't just have an open-ended um, uh, funding source to, to go to the moon and do it on a, on a scale of revenue that's orders of magnitude smaller than anybody has done before. So we have to change things. We have to do things differently. And we have to look at challenging some of the paradigms that, that exist in the aerospace industry for accepting risk and for testing our systems and integrating our systems. But one of the things that we think is an advantage for intuitive machines is because a significant portion of our workforce and leadership comes from a NASA background, we're, we're kind of doing a little bit of an a la carte selection of the best techniques that NASA has and then modifying the rest into a new form of, of engineering development. So we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater by any means, but we're being much more selective on where we spend our time and resources to maximize the probability of mission success. How are commercially available components being used? Um, well, I, I, can, I can give you an example of, of where in, inside of our vehicle, we use some commercially available components. We manufacture others. And then we do the complete integration, of course, of the, of the Nova lander. But one of the things that's been very interesting in, in terms of us going out and, and getting, say, um, an avionics component or a structural component, right now, our lunar missions don't survive the lunar night. So we have about a one-week transit to the moon. We land on the moon, and then we operate for up to 13 days on the surface. So from launch until end of mission, that's three weeks. So we're looking for high reliable, highly reliable parts, whereas the space industry has a paradigm of designing for LEO and GEO use with years of reliability. So how do we communicate to an industry of, of parts, uh, commercial parts suppliers for, for building our commercial service who are used to saying, hey, this is the meantime between failure of this device, it's guaranteed to not have a problem for 10 years. And to tell them, hey, we really need this to work very well for three weeks. 
And so it's a, it's a different paradigm of communicating uh, our risk acceptance of a part that might have a problem five years down the road that we'll never see because our missions only are of a very short duration. So making that, that change for the early missions has been a challenge. Now, I wanna tell you, we hope to get out of that mode rather quickly and begin developing survive the night technologies so that our landers operate for multiple years on the surface. But upfront, that, that engagement of our commercial model with the commercial supply chain has been uh, an interesting challenge. How do you use 3D printers to build rocket engines? Wow, uh, that's a great one. And so, you know, my background is, is navigation systems, technically. And so when I see what our propulsion engineers do in, in particular, uh, it, it almost looks like magic. But the, um, the way that, that they are able to route and channel the propellant and the oxidizer into separate chambers and then recombine them to get the optimal mixture of, of liquid methane, liquid oxygen, which is what our propulsion systems primarily run on, could only be achieved with 3D printing. You, you couldn't assemble an engine in parts to run the channels and the chambers of uh, our propulsion system without being able to build that into a built up 3D printed additive manufacturing system. And we, we can build an engine, um, a test engine, in a little bit less than a week on one of our 3D printers made with stainless steel, and then have it in the field and tested within three weeks. So it allows us not only to build um, a, a methodology around the engine that could only be done with 3D printing, but allows us to rapidly um, iterate. And we'll push an engine to failure and get great data from it and then be up and running the next iteration of that in less than a month. And that kind of, of rapid iteration has really allowed us to dial in the performance of our propulsion systems. So then wrap up, if you will, by telling us about using your Nova Sea lander to help NASA harvest ice from below the lunar, lunar surface. Yeah, that's, that's our second mission, IM2, which is slated for um, November or December of 2022. And we're going to land at the South Pole, and we're going to take a drill, which is a NASA prototype drill that they're flying on another mission with a rover later. And we're going to drill for volatiles, ice being one of the volatiles, for our NASA customer um, at the South Pole. And uh, we're super excited to be looking at that because those volatiles are the fuel and the, uh, um, the life support systems that we're going to use when we eventually build human habitats uh, on the moon. Dr. Tim Crane, co-founder, vice president of R&D, and chief technologist at Intuitive Machines. If somebody wants to connect with you, Tim, maybe they want to find out more about the work that you're doing, how can they do that? Well, you can find me on Twitter, and uh, you can also reach me through our company website. We have a, an info link that you can send uh, messages to, and then they get routed to the right person and uh, send a note to me and I'll be glad to hear from you. And find and subscribe to more of my interviews right here on ZDNet, YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or at tanyahall.net. Thanks for watching.